Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. This morning, our text is in Luke chapter 4, and uh, many of you that have been with us for a while, you know we're working through the Gospel of Luke, text by text, and I'm calling this our journey with Jesus. This is our sermon series that we've been on in the last uh, few months, and this morning's text is of particular interest to me, uh, because here is where we get our first glimpse of Jesus as a preacher, and we get to see the types of sermons that Jesus preached. And as a preacher, I I can't think of anybody I would rather learn how to preach from than Jesus himself, the master teacher, and so... This is a text that I've been looking forward to. I've broken our text this morning up into five sections. Uh, If you look down at your Bibles, verses 14 to 20 is the custom of his sermons, where we'll see how Jesus preached typically, and uh, the style of his preaching, you might call it, or just the manner in which he preached. And then that'll be the custom of his sermons. And then verse 21 is the content of his sermon on this particular occasion. Verse 22 is the conversations during his sermon, and verses 23 to 27, the conclusion of his sermon, and then uh, the last three verses will be the consequence of his sermon. And I hope uh, that the consequence of my sermon this morning will differ drastically from the consequence of Jesus on that particular day. But that's where we're headed. Before we jump into the text, I want to give a little bit of context uh, to help you understand this, this, uh, this story. So our text takes place following Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We looked at that last week, if you remember. And then the week before, we looked at the baptism of Jesus. And so this is really where Jesus begins his public ministry. This is uh, where, where Jesus begins to travel throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. And I have a map up here if you want to look. Oh, he's already one ahead of me. Uh, this is this region up here. This region in the, in the northern part of Israel is all known as Galilee. And so right here is Nazareth. This is where Jesus was from. And these towns along the Sea of Galilee you may have heard of, places like Capernaum, that's a place Jesus did a lot of his ministry. Uh, You see Cana right there where the waters turned to wine, that's Jesus' first miracle. And these are all relatively close to each other. Um, You can very clearly see, for instance, Tiberias from Capernaum. It's it's not far at all. I've walked from Cana to Nazareth. It looks like a long distance. You can walk it in an afternoon. And so these are all uh, relatively close places in Galilee. A lot of the, the whole area to this day is still dotted with little towns. And so in, in the days of Jesus, there were uh, towns that he would go, to, go throughout all of this region preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so we'll see that uh, further as we go. But in each one of these places, there were synagogues. And we're going to talk about these in just a few minutes. But uh, to start with, we'll read verses 14 and 15 of our text. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And you notice he returned because that's where he's from. Jesus born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and then he goes down to Samaria for his baptism and temptation. And so uh, he's headed back to where he's from in Galilee. And it says, there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And so Jesus begins his ministry preaching here, and as he travels around Galilee, teaching in the synagogues of each town that he went to, uh, his reputation begins to spread. People begin to hear about his miracles, uh, and people begin to hear about this, this powerful preacher that is traveling throughout Galilee. And so his reputation is spreading. And any Jewish town that had at least uh, 10 men 
they would normally have a synagogue. It only took 10 men to have a synagogue, and so many of these towns actually that were larger had many synagogues. Uh, we know Jerusalem had literally hundreds of synagogues, and so it's uh, sort of like you might think of churches. Synagogues, uh, a synagogue is not the temple. You remember the temple is the place uh, where, uh, where sacrifices were made and, and things like that. All the priests were there. Uh, synagogues would be more like a church as we think of it today. It, they were all over the place. Uh, many of you probably drove by churches on your way here this morning, and that's sort of how it was in Israel. There's synagogues all over the place. And each of these synagogues, uh, like I said, very similar to a church today. In fact, it's, it's almost like a, a prototype of a New Testament church, a synagogue is. Uh, they would gather there on the Sabbath day, and it was a place of instruction. There would be singing followed by scripture reading, uh, normally the Shema, and then a section of the Law and the Prophets. And they would, systematically, synagogues would read through and, and teach through the entire Old Testament. For instance, the Law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, they taught through every three years. Just each, each week, they took another section. And as the scripture was read, the men of the synagogue would discuss the text, or if a visiting teacher, like Jesus in in this occasion was there, uh, if he was available, then he would teach. And so Jesus traveled around from one town to the next, teaching in the synagogues. And it was the perfect place for him uh, to teach these people. They were gathered there expecting a message from God, and so Jesus would go and teach. And as he taught the people, he uh, he became very popular. People loved to hear Jesus teaching. And we know the content of his preaching. Jesus preached the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. We know from the book of Mark, for instance, uh, Mark says immediately following Jesus' baptism and temptation, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And that's really a summary of Jesus' preaching ministry. He went from one synagogue to the next, uh, preaching the gospel. And so these first two verses in our text, verses 14 to 15, really summarize the first year or so of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he had been preaching and traveling, doing miracles for almost a year when he arrives back at Nazareth. In his hometown of Nazareth, you remember we talked about this, this is where Mary and Joseph are from. It's an insignificant town. It's, it's not a large place at all. It's sort of uh, out in, in the middle of nowhere. It's not uh, like some of the other important cities that were on, on the, the seashore of the, of the Sea of Galilee, or the lake, really. Uh, Nazareth was kind of a, a distance from there. So it was, it was a, considered an insignificant town, and Jesus returns to his hometown to teach the Bible in the synagogue there. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in verse 16. It says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. So here's where we see the custom of his sermons. It was the practice, like I said, in the synagogues to teach through books of the Old Testament, just like we do here at our church. Someone would stand and they would read the text, and then then, uh, someone would come and teach the text. It's very similar to the style we do here. Notice also the end of the verse says they stood up to read. Again, I think we do uh, kind of mirror a lot of the practices of these synagogues. They would stand up for the reading of the word and then sit and someone would speak. The only difference is Jesus sat while he was preaching. Maybe I should start doing that. I don't know. Uh, But Jesus was an expositor of Scripture. He would go from one synagogue to the next as he traveled, and it it appears that he taught whatever text they had arrived at in their study. Uh, It says that it was handed to him, the the scroll of Isaiah. Now, he might have asked for it, but the text doesn't seem to imply that. It seems like that was just where they were at. They were in Isaiah uh, chapter 61, and that's where he started to read. You notice in verse 17, it says, There was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, that's Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, 
he found the place where it was written. Of course, they didn't have books. Uh, maybe a better translation would be scroll. Of course, they, they would unroll a scroll. And uh, that's wherever, you know how a scroll works? You got two, two kind of uh, uh, spheres on the sides there that you roll it with. And so uh, the way you kept your place, instead of a bookmark, it, basically you just rolled it so that when you opened it, that was right where you left off the last time. And so Jesus seems to be just starting where they had left off. And he unrolls the scroll and he finds that they're in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And here we'll see Luke, uh, Luke's account of this. Luke, sorry, uh, verse 18, this is the scripture that Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And so that's the, the scriptural passage Jesus read. And then verse 20 says, he closed the book or he, he rolled back up the scroll, gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And this was the point where Jesus was expected to teach. He was expected to explain the text uh, much like we do here at our church. And so I just want you to imagine uh, if Brother Marvin came up here and read the scripture as he just did, and then I came up and I said, uh, the scripture you just read is being fulfilled right now. That's what Jesus is saying here, that right now, today, the scripture that I just read is being fulfilled. Verse 21 is where, where he says this. He began to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And I know some of you are thinking, you wish that I would follow the example of Christ and preach a sermon that short. But let me just point out, in verse 21, it says he began to say unto them. So this was just his opening line. He continued uh, explaining how he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so Jesus says that he has come to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's the year of the Lord's favor would be a way of translating. It's, it's that uh, this is the time when God is accepting. He is uh, pouring out his grace on people. And he's referring here to the year of Jubilee. And if you're unfamiliar with this, don't worry. We're going to have a little Bible study this morning. Leviticus 25, uh, verse 9, gives us the instruction of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in, uh, in Israel's Old Testament was a time that uh, God had instructed them every 50 years. Uh, all debts would be forgiven. There would be a trumpet blast, and the, uh, the year of Jubilee would be announced. And it was a year of forgiveness, really. It was a year where if you owed someone money, uh, that debt was wiped away. Uh, if you had a slave, that slave was freed. And we'll talk about slavery more. Biblical slavery is not the same as American slavery. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but don't think one, one race enslaving another race. That's not what we're talking about. This was a, a part of the justice system. If you committed a crime, like if I, if I stole something uh, from somebody and I couldn't afford to make restitution, I would serve him for a period of year to pay off the debt. It was not uh, a racially induced thing whatsoever. And so uh, every 50 years, though, the debts would be forgiven, slaves would be set free, and land would be returned to its original owner. And so this is called the year of Jubilee. And the intention was that uh, the rich and powerful people wouldn't be able to just keep getting more and more rich and powerful because every 50 years, uh, you know, if you, if you bought a bunch of land from somebody, well, it, it went back to their family again. And so it was a way of really bringing up the poor and uh, giving them a fresh start every 50 years. Verse 9 of Leviticus 25 says, Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession.'" 
and you shall return every man unto his family. And so that's exactly what we just talked about. If you borrowed a large sum of money from somebody and then you didn't pay it back, or if you committed a crime against somebody, like we said, and you were in servitude to, uh, for them for, you know, you're sentenced for a period of time, uh, you would be released at the year of Jubilee. It was a time of total forgiveness of debt and freedom from enslavement. And Jesus is turning this into a metaphor for salvation. Jesus had come to preach that God was ready and willing now to forgive sin totally. Uh, God is willing to cancel your debts. He's willing to set you free. And that's the promise of the gospel. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And notice these uh, descriptions that he gives. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So the text gives us several categories of people. There are poor, brokenhearted, captives, blind, uh, and bruised or oppressed. These are all metaphors Jesus used throughout his ministry to describe fallen humanity. They, they all describe uh, sinners, really, all of us, in, in our, uh, our, our original condition as sinful humanity. So the work of salvation that Jesus is doing here is he's preaching good news to the poor, uh, deliverance to the enslaved, recovering of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. These are descriptions of what Jesus came to do. And apart from the salvation that Jesus brings, all of us are poor, we're broken, we're captives, we're blind, we're oppressed sinners. And we as sinners must recognize that this is our condition and come to Jesus for salvation. So we're, take, we're going to take these phrases and uh, just explore a few of them a little bit more. First of all, good news to the poor. And by the way, it's not, it's not the good news that the poor are going to get rich. That's not the point. Again, this is not talking about necessarily uh, actual people in abject poverty, but it's a spiritual metaphor, people that are spiritually poor. Uh, Matthew 5, you may be familiar with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so this word poor in both of these texts, does not, uh, it doesn't just mean that you don't have much. It literally means you have nothing. It's a picture of a beggar who sits on the street corner, totally dependent on somebody else. He, he has nothing to offer. And so Jesus is talking about somebody who recognizes his spiritual poverty. I have nothing by which to purchase eternal life, and I'm in desperate need of help. Remember, there's a lot of people in our, in our society today, just like there were back then, that they think they're not poor. They think that, especially in America, we think that we're fine. We don't need God. We're, we have all of, the, all of our needs met. But according to Christ, all of us, apart from his salvation, are spiritually poor. Revelation 3.17, here are some people Jesus rebukes. He says, you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you don't know, knowest not, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Before you can receive the good news of the gospel, you must recognize your spiritual poverty, that you are desperately in need of God's grace. The second one is uh, deliverance to the captives. This good news of the gospel is that you can be delivered from captivity. You can be delivered from imprisonment. And again, he's not talking about uh, literal prisons. He's talking about people who are in spiritual bondage. And all of us as sinners, of course, are prisoners to our sin. The Messiah comes to bring forgiveness to those who are in prison. Their sentence will be uh, released and they will be free to go. 
This was prophesied of Christ, of course, in Isaiah 42, where it says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. This is all uh, a metaphor of what Jesus came to do. We are all captives to our sin. We are all uh, servants. We are in, in bondage to sin. And Jesus comes to forgive us and to release us from that. Next, we see recovering of sight to the blind. And again, he's not just talking about physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. Uh, Zechariah, you remember in our study of Luke 1, at the end of the chapter there, Zacharias had prophesied. He had said, Thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this light of the gospel that comes to us in our darkness, and it shows us the way out. The unconverted sinner then is spiritually blind. And this is exactly what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians. He said, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we are, as sinners, we are spiritually blind. And Jesus comes to open our eyes. It's exactly what Jesus told Paul to do as he was going to preach the gospel. Uh, he instructed Paul, he said that you're going to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And so there again, you see the darkness to light. This is a spiritual metaphor that we are all lost and blind in our sin, and God comes to open our eyes and to turn us from darkness of light, a darkness to light, rather. The last metaphor is to set at liberty them that are bruised or oppressed is a better translation. These are those who are crushed under the weight of a burden. Uh, Matthew 23, 4, Jesus said that of, of the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So the, the Pharisees had piled up all of these laws uh, in addition to the commands of Scripture, and they expected uh, the people to keep all of these laws perfectly. And it was a burden on them. They, they could not earn eternal life on their own. Nobody could do it. And the oppressed are those who recognize their failure to keep the law And Jesus comes to set them free from their burden. It reminded me of uh, the main character from Pilgrim's Progress. If you've ever read that great book, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory of the Christian life. And Christian is traveling. uh, The the book opens up with him carrying a heavy burden. That is his sin and his guilt. Uh, And he carries it for miles and miles as he walks until eventually in the story he ends up at the cross where he sets it down and uh, and he goes on the rest of the way. And that's a good picture of the gospel that we have a burden on our backs that we can't possibly bear, and God comes to set us free from that oppression. So this is the year of Jubilee. Jesus is announcing uh, freedom to the captives, forgiveness of debt, hope to the one who has no hope. This is an emancipation proclamation, you might say, except it's a spiritual one where Jesus is declaring freedom from slavery. And 
the Jews of Jesus' day did not think of themselves as, as enslaved to anyone. You remember in John 8, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answer him, saying, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Listen to Jesus' answer. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. See, Jesus was not talking about setting you free from literal enslavement or imprisonment, but rather uh, spiritual You are a slave to sin in your natural state, and Jesus is offering you freedom from that cruel master. And that's exactly what uh, salvation is, according to Romans 6. Uh, We've been set free from sin and become servants to God, and you have your fruit unto holiness, the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you must understand your spiritual condition. We are, uh, as, as sinners, we are blind and poor and broken. We're oppressed we're in prison. And Jesus comes to you with good news that you can be delivered. You can be forgiven. It doesn't matter how high your debt is. It doesn't matter if you have nothing to offer God. No way of earning it on your own. God is ready and willing to forgive. This is good news. This is what we call the gospel. And uh, it's good news. It's not good advice. There's a difference. If you, I was thinking about uh, my Greek classes in Bible college. If my Greek professor said to me, uh, if you memorize these you know, 20 vocabulary words and you remember your first and second declension nouns and, and you get all the spellings right for the, you know, the present tense verbs, you'll do well on the exam. Okay, that's good advice. Good news would be if I'm sitting there in front of the exam and I, I can't remember anything. I stayed up all night studying and I didn't get enough sleep and so my brain's just shot. You ever have that happen? And, uh, and you're sitting there just racking your mind trying to think and you know you're going to fail this test miserably. And just imagine your teacher coming by and saying, why don't you scoot over, I'm going to take your test for you. That would be good news. And that's the difference between good news and good advice. The the gospel is good news. You can't pass the test of perfection on your own. And it's not like uh, many systems in religion say that you you do enough good works, it'll outweigh your bad. That's not true. God demands uh, 100% on your test, and you you have no hope of making that grade. All of us are sinners. We all fail the test. But there was one who passed it with flying colors, and that's Jesus Christ. He came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross bearing your sin, and he offers you his righteousness. It's like as, a, as though the guy sitting next to you is a straight-A student, and he offers a switch test with you. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, and yet he extends this grace to you. But a prerequisite for receiving the forgiveness God offers you is you must recognize your need. You must see that you are poor and broken, blind, in prison, and oppressed. You must uh, see your spiritual lostness and turn to him for salvation. And so that's the content of Jesus' sermon. Verse 22, we see the conversations during his sermon. I won't get on a soapbox here about talking during preaching because I'm sure I did that all the time uh, before I was a pastor, so I understand that. But in Jesus' day, they did the same thing. Uh, there were people having conversations while Jesus is preaching. It says in verse 22, all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They were amazed at his message of favor. They thought, man, this is, uh, this is some kind of teacher. He's incredible. But they missed the point of the message, as we'll go on to see. And they had seen him grow up. And remember, this is Nazareth. These are people who knew him. They knew him as a child. And, and they're thinking, isn't this Joseph's boy? Uh, he thinks he's the fulfillment of these prophecies? No, he's, he's the guy that we knew. We remember when he was five years old. And so they, they missed the point of the sermon. They were impressed with his speaking ability, but they didn't see themselves as a lost sinner that desperately needed forgiveness. 
And they certainly didn't see Jesus as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? He's not the Messiah. He isn't who Isaiah's talking about. We know this kid. He grew up here. Uh, John 6, a similar statement. Uh, people said to Jesus, is, or of Jesus, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? They, they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was because of their familiarity with him growing up. So because they, they knew Jesus from his childhood, they were unwilling to accept that he was the promised Savior. In other words, they, they sort of said, who does this guy think he is? And, uh, you know, he, we remember him as a little kid. Now he's claiming to be the Messiah. See, the good news of the gospel is only received by those, first of all, who recognize their spiritual condition, that they are blind, oppressed, in prison, poor, and needy. And it's also only received by those who accept Jesus for who he is. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. God, God offers this forgiveness. The year of Jubilee has been proclaimed, but it's only open to those who receive Christ for who he was. The people in Nazareth were impressed with Jesus' speaking ability. Like many today, they might say, Jesus was a good teacher, but that wasn't enough. To accept Jesus as a good teacher is to deny that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So at the core of Jesus' offer of forgiveness is the declaration that he is the Messiah. Remember John fourteen six, Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness outside of Jesus Christ. At this point, Jesus transitions in his sermon, uh, and he prophesies of the people in front of him in Nazareth, and that they would reject his message. He says that they will demand that he do miracles to prove his identity. Notice in verse 23, he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country, in Nazareth. He's telling them, uh, your disbelief in me is going to grow. You're, you're going to demand signs from me and not accept me for who I, for who I am. They, they would refuse to believe that Jesus was who he claimed, and they demand that he prove it by doing miracles. Verse 24, he says, Verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He knew that the people from his hometown would reject him. And then he lays the bombshell, and this is the conclusion of his sermon, starting in verse 25. And this is what enrages the people in the synagogue. He says, I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, that's Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. There was a drought for three and a half years, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarapta, a city of Sidon, unto a widow, woman that was a widow. Verse 27, many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eleusus, that's a Greek spelling of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Now what's Jesus talking about here? Why did this irritate them so much? Uh, he said these, these stories are found in the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. And uh, some of you may be familiar with them. But 1 Kings 17, I'll just summarize these. You don't have to turn there, and, and I won't put them on the screen. But this is just a, a quick summary of the story to catch you up to speed here. We have an account in 1 Kings 17 uh, of the prophet Elijah providing for a widow woman. There was a famine throughout the land, and God had made it not rain for three and a half years because the people were worshiping Baal. They had turned their back on God. And so uh, God judged them by sending no rain for three and a half years. And this is under the, the king, uh, king Ahab. You may have heard of him, a wicked king, his wife Jezebel. Uh, these were, were very wicked Baal-worshiping people in the Old Testament. And God judged all of Israel by sending this drought. 
And in the middle of this drought, there's a woman who's about to starve to death along with her son. She has just enough food to make one last meal before she dies. And God sends Elijah the prophet to this woman. And he, when he meets her, he, he asks her to make a meal for him. Uh, and she responds by telling Elijah, I only have enough for one final meal for me and my son before we starve to death. Elijah tells her, don't be afraid. God is going to provide for you. And so she makes the meal for Elijah the prophet, and then uh, God miraculously sustains her by making her jug of oil and her jar of flour just continue to produce. You remember the story? She keeps pouring oil. She keeps dumping more flour out of the bag, and it never runs out. Year after year, it seems, this goes on until the famine's ended. So God sustained her in this miraculous way to save the life of this widow lady. Now, the reason this story would have made the people mad is this lady was not a Jew. She was a Gentile like you and I. And so uh, Israel was in sin at the time, and, and God was punishing Israel for their sin. He sends them the famine, and he decides to extend his grace to this Gentile widow, this, uh, this non-Jew. And not only was this lady not a Jew, she was from Sidon, which is where Jezebel's from. Uh, Jezebel's father was a ruler in Sidon, a, a Baal-worshipping king. In fact, I don't remember exactly what his name was, but it has Baal in it. He changed his name and put uh, the name of his God in his, in his name. And so Jesus is, is pointing out that God had mercy on this widow, even though she wasn't a Jew and she was from this land outside of Israel, Sidon, a wicked place, idolatrous place. And many widows suffered during the time of this drought, but God chose to extend his grace to a Gentile widow, and to send healing uh, and, and sustenance to her. And then Jesus brings up the story of Naaman the leper, and this one might even be worse for them, because Naaman uh, was a commander of a Syrian army. This, these were Israel's enemies. Uh, they fought against one another. Naaman was a leper, which means he had a, a skin disease, a terrible disease that often resulted in death in the Old Testament. You hear a lot about leprosy. And during one of his raids against Israel, he had taken captive a little girl uh, who became his servant. And this little girl advises Naaman, hey, you should go back to Israel and find the prophet there. I think he could heal you. Uh, and so Naaman listens to her. He, he goes and meets with the prophet. And the prophet Elisha tells Naaman uh, that in order to be cleansed, you need to go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman was not too thrilled about this because the Jordan River was not as clean as his rivers back home. But eventually he decided, you know what, I'm desperate. I might as well give this a try. I'm going to die if I don't. And so he does. And he comes up the seventh time and he's cleaned. He, he's he's, he's uh, healed of his leprosy. And so many lepers suffered in Israel when Elisha was a prophet, but God only healed one, Naaman, who was a general in the Syrian army, the enemies of Israel. And so this absolutely infuriated the crowd at Nazareth. Jesus is saying God will extend grace to the person who recognized their desperate condition and does what he says. It doesn't matter who they are. And uh, Jesus would be forced to minister elsewhere because his own people in Nazareth didn't accept him. And the implication is that if his ministry uh, was not accepted by the Jews, it would eventually extend even beyond Israel to the Gentiles, as we see it does in the book of Acts, where the gospel of forgiveness goes out to people like you and I who aren't Jews. And so the Jews rejected Christ, and God turned to the Gentiles. He points out, these two Old Testament stories in which God sent prophets to non-Jews. And the point in these examples is the missed opportunity of the people to experience God's work. But it will still go on without them. God's grace 
offered to the people outside of Israel was an offensive concept to the Jews in Nazareth who thought of God as belonging to them. And then we see in verse 28 the consequence of his sermon. All they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up, they thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of a hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. This so enraged the people in the synagogue that they thrust him out of Nazareth to the edge of a cliff where they were intending to throw him down to his death. And then verse 30, he passing through the midst of them went his way. It seems Jesus uh, supernaturally escaped from them. God uh, just carried him right through the crowd and dropped him off on the other end. Uh, It's amazing to me as I think about the story from last week. Satan tempts Jesus to jump off the cliff and the angels are going to save him and Jesus doesn't do it. But here, uh, when the time of Jesus' need is where he's in danger of his life and uh, it's not his time to die, God sends those angels to rescue his son. And so he leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum in the next story that we'll look at next week to proclaim the offer of God's grace that Nazareth had refused. Now there's one more thing I need to go back and mention that I I left out in our text. That's Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. When Jesus is quoting, or reading rather, from this text, he stopped mid-sentence. And I want to point this out. In the Old Testament it says, uh, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to them that are bound. You remember all that from Luke. To proclaim, verse 2, the acceptable year of the Lord. And here's where Jesus stops. He closes the book, and he says, This day is this prophecy fulfilled in your sight. So this day, when Jesus came, the first half of that sentence was fulfilled, and the rest will be fulfilled at his second coming, which it goes on to say, to proclaim the, the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of God's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus comes uh, the first time, He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross as our substitute, offering us forgiveness from sin and bondage and a relationship with God. And then when he comes the second time, it will be in judgment on all those who refuse the offer that he died to give. So Jesus preached that everyone must repent and believe the gospel at his first coming because when Jesus comes the next time, it will be too late. Jesus forced a response from those who encounter his message. You either accept him or you reject him. If you accept him, As the promised Messiah, by repentance and faith, you can enter the kingdom of God, where Jesus rules the hearts of men. If you reject him and his message, he will pass you by and find somebody else who will accept him, and you will face the judgment of God at his next coming. The offer of the year of God's favor is not just an offer to be received. It is a command to be obeyed. You can receive forgiveness and grace from God through Jesus, but if you refuse him, you will face him when he comes the second time to judge those who did not repent and believe the gospel. This is exactly what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, this is his second coming, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So when Jesus comes uh, the second time, he will be admired and glorified by those, of, those who are saints, those who have obeyed the gospel, and he will judge those who have not. All of those, like the people in Nazareth, who refused to respond to the gospel in obedience, they will face Jesus as judge. 
So the first coming of Christ was a proclamation of the year of God's favor. You can be forgiven. You can be set free from your bondage. And his second coming will be a declaration of the day of God's vengeance. So what is the right response to the offer of the gospel? How are we supposed to respond to this good news? First of all, the offer is only good news to those who recognize their, their desperate condition. You must see yourself as poor, as blind, as imprisoned, as in bondage, as oppressed. And then you must turn to, to Christ and, and accept him as the Savior that he is. And he promises that if you run to him, he will accept you. This is the year of the Lord's acceptance. And I want to close this morning by reading from Psalm 107. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn that. I didn't put it on the screen, but I'm going to read from Psalm 107. This is uh, one of those, those psalms that I, if somebody, if a lost person came to me, somebody that didn't know Christ, didn't know anything about the Bible, or uh, just asked me, where should I read? Uh, this would be a good place to send people, especially if they're hurting, if they're confused. This is a great text, Psalm 107. If you don't have your Bible, just listen and, and follow along as I read. It says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. And gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way that they may might go to a city of habitation. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness! For his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfieth the longing soul, he filleth the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and contemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, there was none to help. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death, and break their bands in sunder. Oh, that men might praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression, because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat. They draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving, declare his works with rejoicing. They that go down to the sea in the ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth a stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet, so he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. This morning, if you're lost, if you're, you feel like you're wandering in a wilderness, you're hungry and thirsty, you're sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, bound in affliction, 
You're drawing near to the gates of death. You're in distress. You're lost at sea. Your, your soul is melted because of trouble. If you're reeling to and fro and you're at your wit's end, cry unto the Lord in your trouble, and he will bring you out of your distress. You can be saved. This is the year of Jubilee. This is the year where God extends favor and grace and forgiveness. You can be set free from sin. You can have your debts forgiven. Just like the widow woman or Naaman the leper, you must recognize your condition of desperation and be willing to do whatever God instructs you, whether it's giving up your last meal or going and dipping in a dirty river seven times. Just be willing to repent and do what the Lord tells you to do. And that's the problem with the people at, at synagogue. Not only must you repent, you must also believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's, that was their issue. They rejected Christ. But if you come to him, you can be forgiven and rescued. If you'd like to know more about that, I invite you uh, to come talk to myself, talk to my wife there in the back row. She would love to, to sit down with you and show you how you can know for sure uh, that God ha- will forgive your sins. And that is an offer that Jesus Christ uh, gives to us by dying on the cross, by living a perfect uh, life. When he died on the cross, he, he took our sin on himself. He bore our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved, and he offers us grace. If you're here this morning and you have experienced the forgiveness and deliverance of God, I want to encourage us all to take instruction from Psalm 107. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. And now, Father, we do praise you for your goodness, for your wonderful works, for who you are and for what you've done for us. We were poor, we were broken, we were blind, we were oppressed. We were in bondage to sin, and you set us free. Everyone in this room has that testimony. We were not born Christians. We were born uh, rebels against your will, sinners. And you forgave us. You forgave our debts. You delivered us from our distresses. And I pray, God, that you would do that for anyone who, who might be under the sound of my voice that's listening, whether it be online or here in the room today. If, if they don't know that they've been forgiven by you, I pray that they would turn to Christ, that they would believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that they would repent of their sins and trust him to save them, to forgive them. This is the year of your favor, God, and my prayer is that everyone would accept you now before it is too late. I don't want anybody in our church to face you on Judgment Day having not accepted you as Savior and Lord, and I pray that you would do that today. God, for those who have been forgiven, help us never get over that. Help us not to become calloused to the fact that that you saved us. We didn't deserve it. We had nothing to offer. We were poor and broken and blind, and yet you extended grace and mercy and forgiveness to us. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to get over that. Help us not to become calloused to all the grace and mercy that you've given us, but help us to praise you. Oh, that men would praise you for your goodness and for your wonderful works to us. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.